Welcome to the Reunion Church Podcast. We're a community following Jesus, seeking the good of our city. We hope today's teaching is both challenging and encouraging. If we could be a resource to you on your spiritual journey, don't hesitate to reach out via our website at reunionnyc.com. for our day today, but uh, this is what it's uh, brought us. So um, if you're new, welcome. My name is Russell. I'm the pastor here. And um, as, as Brandon was going through that, I was actually reminded um, these, um, all these things that we're doing as a church, fall happenings and our calendar and all these things we want to talk about um, are open invitations. And people love to be invited to things. And so please extend an invitation uh, to a friend, to a community group. Um, if church is like not their thing, serving could be their thing. And so that's a way to engage people into serving together. We're going to be at the Father's Heart at the end of this month. And it could be a really kind of low bar thing. Ask uh, for a friend. So I would encourage you to be open with your circles of relationship in that way. All right, let's pray. And then we're going to pick apart this text. And primarily, actually, today we're going to talk about hell. Um, so let's definitely pray. All right. So, Father, I love you. Um, and um, I just pray that you would be in our midst, that we would actually know your heartbeat, that we would know more of um, what you're like, who you are, your character. Um, and you do, you talk about uh, harsher realities. And so I pray that for some of us today, that we would actually come face to face with the darker parts of who we are. And we'd be realistic about that, that we would wrestle um, even from a theological place about what we believe and that ultimately uh, your scripture would um, root us. And um, I need your help, God. So would you humble me um, today to, to teach this text? And what we know not, would you teach us? What we have not, would you give us? And what we are not, would you make us? In Jesus' name, amen. And so um, as a church, uh, the desire is that we would be a biblical community. 
right? We believe in the Christian scriptures for life and practice. And so that's why we've been over the last year spending so much time in Mark's gospel is how do we get a renewed and new vision for the person of Jesus? Who is Jesus? What did he what did he do when he was on earth? What is he asking of us? And I say all this because there's actually a sort of natural inclination today to skip the text, right? It's like a little heavy and we can just like keep going forward. And even me, as we were sort of making plans, I was thinking, oh, well, maybe Brandon will preach that day or something, you know? (laughs) And so um, I think it's natural for us. And I don't want to skirt around this. I think it's natural for us to be sort of selective with the Bible, right? Like you're not going to like go devotionally and look at Mark chapter 9 verses 42 to 50, right? But Jesus did speak about these things. And as a community, we should speak about them too if we're going to follow him all the way. And so what I did in my prep this week is I was like, I'm going to go find out every time the word hell is used in the New Testament. And I'm going to like, I told Josh, I was like, I'm going to like put that on the screen so we can get a full grasp. That'd be a lot. All right. And so what I do want you to do, though, if you want to take out your phone or if by chance you have a Bible, um, your phone could be a friend to you today. In looking at some of these verses, I'll reference a lot. Most of them that I'm going to reference today, there's like 10 plus that I'll put on the screen. But I really want to get a biblical perspective of hell so that we can talk about um, this idea of temptation. All right. Let's begin with an image. Um, Okay. Thank you. Welcome to reunion, I guess. This is sadly a sign from the infamous Westboro Baptist Church, and I I found this on the internet, but I, um, and if you're just walking in, like, don't worry, I'm giving context to this picture, okay? So, um, I just have to say this. So, uh, the Westboro Baptist Church is actually about 45 minutes away from where I pastored um, previously to being here in New York City, in Kansas City, and so they were often um, seen around Kansas City. And one Sunday, I don't know why, I don't know what we did, um, but they protested our church. And like, I kind of was like, yes. I don't know what that exactly means. I don't know what we did, but I was like, kind of like, maybe this is a badge of honor that I can wear that the Westboro Baptist Church like protested us. But I learned something that day. The team behind the Westboro Baptist Church are actually really good lawyers. And so if you ever see them in groups, what you'll actually see is someone standing in the background filming everything. And what happens is, is that they incite you with anger and then they sue you for assault when you punch them in the face. All right. So this is the logic behind that. So they are best ignored. But back to the sign. What is it about some people that so candidly and possibly joyfully speak of people going to hell? Or even the ways that we've taken the Bible, we've taken Jesus's metaphors, and we've sort of desired to create a fine-tuned picture of what hell is actually like, right? You're like, well, Jesus says outer darkness and fire, so hell must be like dark, but fire, fire doesn't light in hell. I don't know. It's like dark fire in hell. I don't know what it's like. It sounds terrible, right? And so, and then we create horror movies around all of these things, right? And so I'm like, what is happening when I look at this? Passage, And so let me settle this image with this scripture here in 2 Peter chapter 3. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise in some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, that all should reach repentance. And so I just want to settle this matter in your mind. Like a quick overview of the scriptures today. Hell is not something that God desires for his people. That is not something that God desires for his people. And this is what we actually see in the scriptures 
over and against the bigotry found um, in a cult like the Westboro Baptist Church. This is the heartbeat of God. And I want to say and here. I don't want to skirt around the intensity of what Jesus is saying. The reality that Jesus is presenting in the passage. Jesus did say the things that I just read. Or that Brandon just read. He did talk about sin. He did talk about um, us being distant from God. And as I read the passage this week, I thought to myself, well, Jesus, you're actually only presenting me with two bad options, right? Cut off your hand or your foot or go to hell. Gouge out your eye or go to hell. I'm like, Jesus, is there like a third possibility here? Like, give me the third way. I want to do that. But what it actually leads us to is an age-old question, which is this. If God is all-loving and merciful... How can he send anyone to hell? This should be wrestled with, right? This isn't something for uh, people that um, follow Jesus uh, to avoid. I think that if we actually dig into this and we understand the nature and the character of God, we can actually grow to love God more as we understand more. And so maybe just pause for a second. I know we're early on here, but maybe, maybe just take notice of yourself for a second. What are you thinking? What are you trying to rationalize? Or maybe even up front a little bit, you sort of scoff and, and you think, well, Russell, obviously this is not literal, right? Jesus is giving us a metaphor. Um, or maybe you sit here and you think, well, you know what? I, I just don't read stuff like this. I, I read the Bible. I read the positive things that Jesus says. But this, like, uh, this is for someone else to think about, right? But here's where I want to lead us today. How do we get a deeply biblical viewpoint on things like sin? And temptation and hell. So here's kind of the pathway that I want to walk today. We want to look at a bunch of different verses so we can get a biblical view of hell. And then I want to go back to our text for today and understand what that means for temptation and other people. That's what Jesus is focused on um, in the first part of it. And then we'll, we'll wrap up talking about the gospel. But let's begin here. The Bible is largely found, let me rewind here. The Bible is largely found, is found in two parts. The Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament is written in Hebrew. The New Testament is written in Greek. In the Old Testament, um, it chronicles the story of the Israelite people where God is going after the Israelite people. And the Israelite people are like, come God. But then they're like, no, go away, God. And so it's like this over and over and over again. They're faithful. Um, they're unfaithful. God is continually faithful. In the Old Testament... Um, in the Hebrew, the word hell is actually found um, 66 times, and the word is sheol. Um, I found this pretty fascinating this week. Most of the time that it's used, it's used in its form, in its Hebrew form in our English Bibles, sheol. Other times it's translated grave or pit or hell. It's generally used as, uh, like the best way to understand it in, in English is just like the underworld. The place that you go when you die. So here's two examples of it. Um, in Genesis chapter 37, uh, Jacob is um, mourning over his son Joseph. And he thinks his son is dead. And so um, it says all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, him being Jacob. But he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. And so it's not describing a, pa- a place of torment or even pain, but a place of lament, to join his son in lament. Uh, Psalm 86, verse 13. For great is your steadfast love towards me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. Notice here in Psalm 86, is, it's a place where, where God has access to. Like Sheol is a place where God can still save us. 
If you fast forward to the New Testament, there are three words used for hell. One is only used once. I've never heard it before. It's kind of a side note. But there's two words that are primarily used. You might be familiar with one of them. Hades, properly um, the unseen place or the invisible realm where the dead go. Um, Hades. Uh, This word is found only 10 times in the New Testament. Here are two references um, for it. One is in uh, Matthew chapter 16. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell, Hades, shall not prevail against it. And then Acts chapter 2, verse 26 and 27. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. And so oftentimes when uh, the, the word hell is used in the Bible, it's actually talking about the fact that God um, supersedes hell. That God has the power to save us from this place. And so taking these together, and you can go look. I, if, you, if you're interested, you can email me. I'll send you all the references. But hell, what we find if we take all the Bible together, is a place of judgment. Right? Hell is a place of punishment, excuse me, after judgment. The Bible describes a day when Jesus will come to judge both the living and the dead, and the soul continues on. And then what you get in the scriptures is um, hell described through imagery, fire, darkness, a place where people lament. And this is where I want to sort of challenge us to a more um, biblical view of what hell is. In our passage today, hell, or um, the word is Gehenna, is actually found 12 times, and three of those 12 times are actually in our passage. And Gehenna is uh, two words put together. G-E means valley in the, in the Greek, and Hinnom is the valley of Hinnom. And what Jesus is saying when he uses this word hell here is he's talking about a literal place um, south and east of Jerusalem. And so what they would do, you, this is going to sound very familiar to you. You take all your trash in your house, and you pile it up on the street, and someone takes it. And what would happen in Jerusalem is it would all your trash would be taken to the southeast side of Jerusalem. And it was on the southeast side because the way the winds travel throughout that valley, it takes the wind, uh, the wind takes the odor outside of the city. And so all the trash was placed in the valley of Hinnom. And so Gehenna, in Jesus' day, was simply... The city's landfill. It was the dump. It's very exciting, right? And so Jesus is using a metaphor about what hell is. And what do you, what do you think about the dump? In, in these times, what they would do with the dump is they would burn everything. And so they would start fires and throw all the, the trash on top of the fire and it would burn. What does it begin to do? It begins to disintegrate, right? Well, the other reference, um, in, it's not in this passage. I believe it's in Matthew. It says, the weeping and gnashing of teeth. The gnashing of teeth, scholars actually think, was um, food scraps or whatever was left over in the dumps would be dogs, like feral dogs, fighting over it. And the gnashing of teeth would actually be at the city's dump, the dogs fighting over leftover food. And then here's an interesting thing in our passage in um, verse 48. It says, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. The fire continues on and it's gross, but there's worms. And so last night, this is a true story, beautiful evening, and uh, my wife wanted to eat up, we have this little patio on our roof, and um, we head up there, and my wife opens the door, and there's like flies buzzing around, and she's like, Russell, there's so many flies, and I was like, oh, I know, and then she like looks over, and she's like, your grill, and 
Katie's grandma got me this like little electric George Foreman. It's like terrible at cooking, but I do it anyway. And I guess the last time that I cooked up there, I like, didn't clean it. And so the summer heat actually melted the griddle and in the grease trap, I'm, I won't go into too much detail here, but like there's like a thick layer of grease and then on top, there's like these black larva worms like covering the top. Like I, I'm done, I'm done. And my, <laughs> you could smell it. And my wife is the best. She's like, you gotta clean that like right now. And I was like, I'm gonna throw it away and buy a new one, like the, the tray. And she's like, you're gonna forget to do that. And I was like, you're right, I am. And um, so I was like, I'll eat and then I'll clean it. And I did, and it was hell. All right, that's what it was. It was like hell. Um, but something in me, is, it, I was thinking about this, something in me knew that this was repulsive. Like whatever this was, like it, it, the smell, the look, the, like something in, in me knew that I didn't want to do this. I didn't want to touch this. I didn't want to be a part of it. I don't know if you've ever um, thought about in our city, like where the trash goes. Um, but from 1948 to 2001, this is where your trash went, um, to Fresh Kills. Um, can anybody guess where Fresh Kills is? It's not Jersey. Staten Island, that's right, okay. So sorry, I don't know, just, we'll just leave that there. But here's a fascinating thing, I was reading about Fresh Kills, and in March of 2001, uh, it closed, it was becoming, um, it was becoming overwhelming. And uh, there was like rat infestations, they tried to release birds, there was this like big accident with syringes that washed up onto the Jersey Shore, it was like an absolute dump. But the, um, the March 2001 it closed and then it had to reopen. It had to reopen in September 2001 um, as it was sorting, it was a sorting ground for 9-11. And so 1.6 million tons of material obtained from ground zero was actually taken to the landfill for sorting. And it was a mess and they had to reopen it. Um, it was the largest landfill in the world from 1995 to 2001. And so the destruction found here is like absolutely terrible. Um, they faced a lot of controversy over, over the years. But I think when Jesus is describing Gehenna, this place, this valley of Hinnom as a way, the reader, the, the original reader is saying, I understand the, the image that you're giving me. I understand the picture you're giving me. Jesus, another one in Matthew chapter 22, verse 13, it's uh, in, a, in a parable here. He says, bind him hand and foot and cast him into outer darkness in the place where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so what is Jesus doing in our passage? You're like, Russell, get to it. What, what, what's happening in the passage? Jesus is using a literary device, a metaphor. And he's giving us or painting us a picture of what separation and life apart from him is like. And so maybe you can say, whew, fire, like outer darkness, like just a metaphor. I don't think that we should still be comforted. Jesus is describing something terrible still. This should not give us more comfort. In fact, maybe what, it, what we actually find is that the reality would be far worse. What does fire do, right? Disintegrates. What does darkness do? Darkness isolates. And this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying hell is isolation and disintegration and separation from God. Right? We have this sort of false image about God where we think God is some sort of proud, domineering, patriarchal figure that if we disobey him, he'll send us to hell. 
Not the biblical idea. In fact, these passages really help shape our understanding of what hell is and how people find themselves there. Isaiah chapter 59 verse 2 says, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so He that he does not hear. What separates us from God? We separate ourselves from God, right? God is not joyful thinking about, oh, I just want to see them burn. Like, that's not, that's not God, right? You and I were made by God for God, to love God, to worship God. And hell is the human soul separated from the love and the care of God. And so Jesus chose really strong and quite terrifying language here. But I think he chose to speak this way because Jesus is real. He wanted to speak truth to us. And so he painted the picture of a horrifying place. And I think that people take this too far, but it should scare us, right? People have used that as a way, like, you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to burn, right? I don't think that it is taken too far, but what gets us there? The separation, the sin. Paul in, in Romans is helping us grasp this in verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, it's on the screen here. God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manners of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy and murder and strife and deceit. They're gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. I love this right in the middle. Disobedient parents. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Notice what Paul's saying in the beginning. They did not see fit to acknowledge God. And so what does God do? God gave them over to the thing that they so desired. Like this, in, in, in one sense, as you say, how can God be a God of wrath and love? If God is loving, how is he filled with wrath or anger? And the answer here is, God gives people what they so desire. He loves you so much that he's giving you so much freedom that he's like, if that's what you so want, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliceness, gossip, if you, if you so want those things, have them. I love you. I, I've given you the freedom and I'm handing you over to that. I like what one theologian says. He says, scripture sees hell as self-chosen. Hell appears as God's gesture of respect for human choice. All receive what they actually choose, either to be with God forever worshiping, worshiping him or without God forever worshiping themselves. I love that. Scripture sees hell as self-chosen, right? It's something that in the end you choose because what is it? What do you so love? Do you desire God's presence where there's life and flourishing and what's presented in the, in the scriptures to know God and to have a fuller um, way his very presence? Or do you desire yourself is essentially what it's asking. Hell is the, is the soul turned inward on itself, living a selfish life and that going on into eternity. And of course, let me pause here and just say that's a mystery. Like, but I think something deep down inside of us knows ah, we were made for more. Like my soul, the soul has to continue. Like it's just sad and defeating that it, it would just cease to exist. But I think God in his love and care and his justice gives people over to what they want. And so what hell is, is the, the ultimate nature of that is the absence of God's presence. And that's the worst thing that can happen. Separation from God. 
So I want to pause here. It's like heavy stuff. It's intense. Um, we're learning about hell. It's like a light topic for today. Eternal judgment. Lament. But what does it have to do with our passage for today? Because Jesus mentioned hell here a few times. But let me bring this together. I want to bring Mark 9, 42 back. He's talking about this, um, this object lesson. I don't know if you remember um, a couple weeks ago we were talking about humility. And Jesus brings this child and says, unless you become like this child, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so this object lesson is still taking place. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And so I sort of imagine that child still sitting there and Jesus is like, okay, I'm done teaching about humility. Now we're going to talk about the, um, the vulnerable. We're going to talk about how we look down on and care for children, right? His object lesson has turned into something else. And then he turns it back on us as people in verse 43. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. What's your hand? Your hand is the thing that you put your work to do, right? It's what you do. Then he goes on to talk about your foot. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. What's your foot? It helps you get places. It's where you go. And then he says, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. What's your eye? It's what you view. He's saying um, in his infinite love and care and the freedom that God has given us, you and I are going to face temptations as people. With our hands, with where we go with our feet, with what we view, with our eyes. And one of the things I really love about this passage is if you whittle it all down, here's what it's saying. How you and I live matters. How we live matters. He's not giving us two bad options, right? Self-mutilation or hell. That's, that's not it. He's not advocating for a form of self-mutilization. How we treat and care for the vulnerable and how we lead other people matters. And so you came in here today and um, there are things in your heart that you care deeply about. There are things that bother you about our world. There are things that bother you about our city. And what is it in us that longs for a just world, right? There's something in us that attaches ourselves to, to something that gives us meaning and purpose. And what we, um, when we survey the Christian scriptures, what we find is that God is, God is a God of love and God is a God of justice. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck. That's intense. But Jesus is saying, I care for the vulnerable. And you should too. And so maybe your question is like, well, how? Like, how can God be a God of love, but also be a God of anger or wrath? Sometimes love, to be filled with love, is actually to simultaneously have anger against injustice. I have someone really important in my life. Um, I'll get into the whole story, but um, my friend was abused as a child, taken advantage of as, as they grew up, stolen from, hit by like all of life's circumstances, struggled to keep a job. And have they made some poor decisions along the way? Absolutely. There's no doubt about that. But largely, this person has been a victim of life. It makes me just angry just thinking about it. It pisses me off. And what I realize is that my anger towards this person's situation derives at my sense of justice about what is right and wrong. Those two things can coexist, right? Love and wrath. And in the same way, the Bible describes God's wrath flowing from his love and his sense of delight in his people. He's angry at evil and injustice and sin because it's actually going against the very way of creation. Um, Fleming Rutledge says it like this. 
We must believe in hell because there is no way, no other way to take seriously the nature and scale of evil in the world. We must believe in hell because there's no other way to do justice to the victims of darkness. We must believe in hell because without it, Christian faith is sentimental and invasive, unable to stand up to the reality of this world. Without an unflicting understanding of the radical nature of evil, Christian faith would be nothing but a suburban bedtime story. Love that. It's still a lot, but I think it helps reframe what it is. God cares and he responds. When a woman is gunned down on 14th Street in violence, there should be justice sought out. God responds and he cares and this is his response. We may not always feel comfortable with it or we may actually only feel uncomfortable with it when it has to do with us, right? But God cares. Violence against women, the exploitation of immigrants and refugees for political gain. All of these things God cares about and he has an intended end to. And so, in one sense, if you take down this sort of line of logic, evil and injustice, hell, in one sense, begins to make sense. But let's zoom out and we'll finish here. Mark chapter 8 and chapter 9. There's a lot going on. But Jesus is, um, the way the author has sort of set up Mark chapter 8 and chapter 9 is really fascinating. Jesus says three times where he's heading. Uh, we've, we've said this before, but basically the first half of the book of Mark is exploring who the person of Jesus is. The second half is exploring what he came to do. And here's what Jesus keeps saying in Mark chapter 8 and in chapter 9. He says this three times. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. Jesus is like, okay, here's what I'm going to do. Like, I'm going to the cross. I'm going to die. I'm going to, going to be raised again. And then he starts teaching. And then he comes back and says this again. And he goes on teaching. And one of the things I was thinking about, I was, I was trying to read the context this week and try to get an idea of, of what's, what's sort of happening. And what I realized is the author is genius. The author is reminding us again, like, hey, these things are not going to be so palatable. These things are going to be a little harder to hear. But it's all framed by what Jesus is about to do. See, the message of Jesus isn't hell. It's the gospel. The good news, which includes salvation from hell, the forgiveness of sins, the gift of justification, adoption, and eternal life. And sin, death, hell, temptation, they're a darker reality of the good news, but they're only a chapter in the story. It's not the whole book. And the Gospels tell us this bad news, right, of sin and judgment. But Jesus also intermixes this with how we're made right, that Jesus came to actually take our place he was separated from the Father, experiencing hell. And if you, if you leave here, please don't leave here today and say, I've got to run from hell. Like, I've got to go do the right things. I've got to go say the right things. I've got to go be the right person. Like, you, you missed it. Actually, what we find is um, that we're beginning to reorient. We're recognizing what God has actually done on our behalf, that Jesus came to save us from the reality of hell and the power of sin and temptation. And this is where our hearts actually begin to be free, to fight against sin, to push those things away, that long list. Like we should push back against those. We shouldn't live in those dark realities. But by the power of God and the Holy Spirit, we're understanding, God, I understand what you did for me. And so I want to do right by you. I want to live into the reality of your freedom. And I know that you experienced that separation. And so I'm responding to you in love. 
His body was broken so that we could experience life. Uh, here's a mock-up, last picture. This is a mock-up um, of Staten Island. Um, fresh kills. Uh, it's being remade into a park. And so this is, they're saying 2035, it's gonna be this beautiful park. I'm still not going there, uh, but um, it's being updated, redeemed, fixed. And um, I don't understand all the mysteries and realities and nature of hell, um, but one of the things I do understand is God's promise of redemption. That in the garden, that's the life that he so longed for you and I to have. And I saw this picture and I thought, that's it. That's the life God longs for. Not fire, not weeping and gnashing of teeth or darkness, but a life teeming with this. I came that they may have life and have it in abundance. Let's pray. And so, Father, I, I come before you humbled that... Um, I think and I study and then I feel like I know less sometimes. And truly, you, God, are a mystery. Um, we come to hear this news again that um, despite our shortcomings, despite our sins, that you so love us. And so I pray that uh, that would be our experience today, that our experience wouldn't be um, confusion or separation from you, but that our experience would be um, deeper knowledge and intim intimacy with you, God. Um, I thank you for this text. I thank you for the ways that it instructs us and molds us and challenges us. And I pray that we would be a community that does um, push back against sin, but also fights on behalf of the vulnerable in an act of justice. And so, Father, as we move to the communion table um, today, would you meet us here by your grace to remind us that our trajectory in our future um, isn't fire or darkness, um, but it's light and life in your son Jesus. And so we love you and we submit this time to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.